You see, we're on a mission from God. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Koreshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is amazing. One of my favorite people, literally, on the face of the earth. And I can't believe it took so long just to get her on the podcast. But, you know, life happens. And she is as busy and fabulous as, uh, well, as I am. So it's really hard to connect with her. But when we do, it's amazing. So you are in for a treat. Please welcome my friend, my teacher, and my mentor, Brie Laskoda. Hi, Brie. Aw, hi. Thank you. That's such a kind introduction. Oh, please. Um, you are coming to us from fabulous Los Angeles, California. I am. It's actually kind of chilly today. We just had rain. And so anytime there's rain in Los Angeles, there's this dance that we do, which is somebody, some random stranger will say it's raining. And then you reply back, we need it. And then you never say anything to each other again. Um, and Or you can also say, isn't it beautiful how Los Angeles is after it rains? And no one says anything because there's a generalized sense of agreement. So we just had a lot of rain and we had hail, which we all videotape. So um yeah, it's like, you know, weather is not something we generally talk about here, but it's crazy cold and stormy, though it's cleared up right now and looking beautiful. Wow, excellent. Do you guys usually get hail? Ever? Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we like rarely got hail. Mm-hmm. And now we get hail once or twice a year. So mm-hmm. the, the perils and um, excitement of climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I know all about that. Um, Texas is is a mess. <laughs> we keep lambed. We had that we had Hurricane Harvey and then we had this god awful weather situation last month. And at some point, you know, people are gonna stop, I think, with the oh, this is unprecedented and realize that no, it is actually quite precedented and like <laughs> it's gonna continue. So maybe we should plan better. I don't know. Yeah, Mother Nature has not got the uh the memo to not mess with Texas. Um, <laughs> it's just like that bitch. Not, it's not working. It's it doesn't it doesn't ward off bad things. I you know it's funny though, like the idea of things being unprecedented. Yeah. Because I think that just means that we have really uh, we have a lot of um, amnesia. Yeah. Right. Like that's it's it's actually it says more about our memory than it does about our reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. And totally. And so like, we did this thing in my office where we were talking about, you know, this, the period of flux that we're supposed, supposedly in where things are unraveling and, you know, institutions are changing and all of this is happening. And then we started to go, just sort of did a little exercise around the table and said, you know, who's, who can remember a time that wasn't in flux and <laughs> didn't feel as if the real world was rapidly evolving and changing. And, you know, I'm a kid of the Cold War, right? And the... 80s and then 90s and the entire remodeling of Europe. I mean, and then we just realized that actually, you know, it's just our version of this and we're, we're facing it. It it has a different flavor and maybe even a different um, tempo. Yeah. But it's not, it's not really that different. And so the thing that's the constant is our surprise at how 
things continue to be the same. Right. right. I think it's so. Right. Anyway. Well, you know, I, when I grew up, we, I was in a religion where they taught us that basically the end of the world was coming at any minute and that there were all these signs of the times. Right. And so basically mm-hmm. I have been, I, you know, I lived the first half of my life, like on the brink of Armageddon. And now I, once I kind of got out of that mindset, now I, I have this almost opposite effect where I'm like, yeah, get out of my face with your hysterics. You know, it's not the end of the world. Trust me, this has all happened before. It's all going to happen again, which is not to say that there's no progress, which is not to say that we can't or we shouldn't intervene. But like this idea that we are about to fall off into the abyss, I just, I can't, I mean, I have no ability to even believe it. Like I need (laughs) definitive proof at this point. I need God to come down from the mountain and like be like, okay, tomorrow's the last day on earth. Because otherwise, <laughs> shut up and like get to work. So there. Yeah. Well, you know, my dad will say that when I was three, I crawled into his lap and asked him if I could pray to stop nuclear war. And I don't know what his answer was because I think he was a little dumbstruck. But I think I grew up in a very similar sense of impending doom, right? And mm-hmm. I lived in Los Angeles and saw one of our local channels, they were playing the movie Earthquake. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just war, it was also environmental stuff. Anyway, so so I I grew up very similarly in that feeling of impending doom and disaster. Part of it, I think, is age, right? Mm -hmm. That you realize that, you know, if someone says history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so like you get, you also get a, a sense of your own agency, right? The things that you have some control over. And when you're younger, you don't have control over much. And so I think that that, that certainly helps the, the perspective that, you know, we have done hard things. You're sort of got proof in your abilities. We've done hard things. We can do hard things. This might be a hard thing and it might not be the end. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be in that space rather than in the, the anger and entitlement of I didn't inherit a perfect world and uh, yeah. I would like one. Yeah. And I'm surprised that it's, I'm surprised that this is where we are. Like, I'm not, I'm not really surprised where we are. Yeah, right. Agreed. Okay, so, Brie, before we get off track, we have to do my icebreaker questions. Yes, please. <laughs> Which... I'm excited what they are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first icebreaker question, because we clearly need to break the ice, is, uh, and you know how I feel about ice. You need to warm me up. <laughs> you need to warm me up. I, I am reticent to talk and to share, so this will really help me. You know that I hate icebreakers, right? I hate them. Yeah, like, uh-huh, of course. I, well, I think that you hate party games in general. Yeah, yeah. But um, but the, but the, I still see that they have value, so we're doing them. Okay, so the first question is, what is the last thing you watched on TV? Oh, I've been watching Catastrophe, which is <laughs> a story of, do you know this? <laughs> it's, um, it's actually not about, though, right? It's not Chernobyl catastrophe. It's a guy who goes to, to uh, London and has a, a fling with a woman and she ends up pregnant. And so they end up um, having a kid together and they're navigating their life as a mar- newly married couple with a and now, now in the later seasons, they have two kids, and I just like their their banter, even though it's 
you know, kind of unrealistic that that whole thing might work out the way that it did. So yeah, it's a really, it's a good show. Good. On Netflix, you said? It's on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Okay. Catastrophe. I will look for it. Um, Second icebreaker question is, what is the last book that you read? What is it called? The, it's, it's the same guy who wrote Devil in the White City. And it's about Churchill. And he's a really interesting writer because it's a sort of historical review of a certain period. So he wrote one about the sinking of the Lusitania, which was really great. And then he wrote one about the Chicago World's Fair. It's Eric Larson. It was called The Splendid and the Vile. That's oh, the one. I mean, my, I've been working my, uh, on it forever. My boss, my boss, who I just interviewed for this podcast like two, three episodes ago, my ex-boss, my old boss, she retired, just read that book mm. and she loved it. She said it was great. Oh, yeah. I'm working on it. And then I also just start because it's a nonfiction. And so on the fiction side, I'm working on uh, Ready Player Two because I loved Ready Player One. I thought it was so great. Have you read that? I have not read it. Oh my gosh. You're going to love it. It's got, (laughs) it's, you know, got pop culture references to like just up the yin yang. And it's about, I mean, Ready Player One is about this uh, virtual gaming world of the future. um, And uh, it just, it's, it's fantastic. It totally sucked me in. And uh, so this is his follow-up, his second book. Yeah. I, uh, I heard good things about it. I just haven't gotten around to reading it. And I think he's in your hood. I think he's an Austin person. Really? Oh. Hmm. Clearly, I'm I'm out of the Maybe you should interview him. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure he will. Fiction is great. You should read fiction. Yeah, I know. You know what I read? Uh, Like two weeks ago, I read a book by Octavia Butler. And it was this... Do you know who she is? She, mm. It was a like this dystopian mm-hmm. yeah. future fiction. I can't remember the name of it. Right there were there's two. There's part one and part two, and this is the first part of her Earthseed books, and I can't remember the exact title. But um, holy shit, it was good, and it like it was. It's it's like one of those things where you, if you don't read fiction for a long time, and then you read a piece of fiction like that, you're just like what am I doing with my life? I should just be reading stuff like this all day. Like it's so. The, the thing is, it makes you think, it makes you think about the same important stuff that nonfiction does, but in much more creative ways. I mean, I mean I'm like, that's what, that's what art, art is for. Is it the parable of the sower? Is that it? I think that's the second one in the series. Oh no, it is parable of the sower. That's the first one. Right. So I need mm-hmm. to read the second one. Yep. So good. So yeah. good. Yeah. I love dystopian fiction. So like now I find it a little bit harder, but you know, my first, favorite book growing up was 1984 and then I read Brave New World and mm-hmm. you know those, that type of fiction I found really interesting also maybe again because of the appending apocalyptic right nature of my upbringing right exactly um okay the oh I just wanted to also point out something that I told Karen my old boss was that I feel a little miffed that Eric Larson chose to use the name of my autobiography <laughs> the splendid and the vile <laughs> because that's oh, really, really? <laughs> that's really much more about me than about Churchill but whatever um, <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and write I mean, my own version of this I've heard it both ways <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. All right. So um, last question is, what did you have for breakfast today? Okay. So when the office closed, I had given the office a Nespresso, but like the big one with all the different, you could put all the different kinds of pods in there. And so when the office closed down, I took it home. So uh, that's my morning uh, habit is that I make myself a really nice latte. So I had a latte and half a bagel oh. with cream cheese. What kind of bagel? And everything bagel. Oh, that's good. That's good. Where do you stand on? What'd you have for breakfast? Blueberry bagels. Oh. Oh, well, uh, according to my friend Rachel Andrus, she says that those are Goyesha bagels. Mm -hmm. um, and so I bring, I, whenever I bring over bagels, she'll say, you know, like, can you bring good ones? And also the Goyesha ones that you like. <laughs> um, so, but I think a blueberry bagel is not too shabby. I'm a really partial to chocolate chip. Really? And uh, not, yeah, chocolate chip bagels are the bomb. Really though? Yes, they all really, really. Wait, what, what do you put on them, cream cheese? Of course. They yeah, don't put salmon. <laughs> For a while, like that's not acceptable. I know, I know where the boundaries are. <laughs> Ew. What I had for breakfast? I had a very simple breakfast today. I had a um, a very large slice of sourdough bread, toasted, and mm -hmm. I cut it in half. And on one half, I put a couple of slices of cheese, like little slices of um, Swiss cheese. And on the other side, I put mm -hmm. some marmalade. And then I had black tea. That was it. Oh. Yeah. I made marmalade for the first time this year. <gasps> you know how I feel about marmalade. I am a big fan. Do you have an orange tree? Um, I actually made it with tangerines. Oh. Which was very good because the tangerines are super sweet. And their peel is less peely. I actually is have been good? making, you know, it's so good. I mean, I've got citrus fruit trees in my backyard. And so I made every kind of jam and preserved something and then now alcohol like um liqueurs with all of my citrus fruits wow. what else are you gonna do yeah no you know what i that's the one thing i miss about living in california is you can literally grow fruit trees like people just have fruit trees all over in their yard and you can eat the stuff like here you are it's really hard to grow anything right like only the like the mm. most brittle and angry plants survive and then if they do have any kind of fruit, like within seconds, any living thing comes and just tears it apart, right? So you might find like half a, oh yeah, you know, half a brown <laughs> pomegranate on a bush. You know, it's nothing good. Um, <laughs> but I just remember growing up in like California, and like we had a neighbor who had an avocado tree, and that thing made so many avocados, mm -hmm. and nobody could eat that many so they would just fall off and get mushy and like we would just when we were kids we would like mm -hmm. take them and throw them at each other <laughs> and now i'd be yeah, like three bucks I for an avocado oh yeah fruit, fruit was decorative it was for nutrition and it was also weapons when you were children absolutely but you know it's funny justin we were over at so my just my husband and he was in graduate school when we were dating and one of his friends from his lab came over to my parents house for dinner and my mom said to this guy can you go outside and get a lemon? And he went from a tree <laughs> because he was from Yellowknife, Canada. He's from the Arctic Circle. 
and my parents thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard this guy like <laughs> wide-eyed and so i had to say he's he's from canada he was like the junior national speed skating champion from canada the guy is like you know he sweats maple syrup like this is <laughs> this is new for him and so yeah we let him go outside and pick fruit and he just had the biggest eyes there's a, awesome. like an ice road you know that show ice road truckers like that's where he lived so <laughs> oh god what a horrible existence did he did he go back do you know uh no now he's, he's working for some i think he works for a pharmaceutical company in europe so he's in the netherlands not exactly a warm place but it's not arctic circle polar bear country yeah, yeah. you could not pay me enough to live up there i just i can't hack it Okay, our icebreakers are over. So now we can talk about anything we want to, which is, I mean, we <laughs> we can talk about anything we want to, actually. So where do you want to start? You want to start with how I met you? Sure. Or do you not give a shit about that anymore? <laughs> what? No. I'm, you mean our history? I mean, our relationship history? Our first no, date? I'm just saying, like, um, like th that's an old story. But But people who are listening to this may not know that story, so... I don't know. I feel like I've... may not know. Yeah, no. Okay. Tell it. Tell the story. How we met. Okay, so I applied for this Which program year? many years ago at the behest of two friends who had gone through the program who said that I should do it. it was, Which two? Uh, Fatime and Shahid. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't even know. Did Shahid oh, yeah. even go through the program? He just knew about it. Yep. Okay. First so, year. First year. Yeah. yeah. So I... Um, applied for it. It was the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute. And I had no idea what it really was, except that I think that both Shahid and Fatima are amazing people. And it, what I read from the description made it look good. So I applied and I got accepted and ended up going and getting involved with this program, this national, yeah, collection of really diverse Muslim leaders from across the country that I was incredibly challenged by. And I met you on the first day of the first retreat. And it was the retreat where I literally had a nervous breakdown because I was so stressed about being <laughs> I was hysterically crying the whole time. And it was just like one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, but it was also a turning point, like a pivot for me. And I got so, like, after that was over, I relaxed and I enjoyed the program and I got to know you even better. You, of course, I was very, I mean, I was intimidated by everything, but obviously by you, because it, you were running the goddamn program. And then over the years, through our sort of getting to know each other, I was like, oh man, this lady is, yeah, she's really smart, but she's also not the stuffed shirt academic type. She's, she's actually totally cool and laid back and awesome. And, and I don't know, then after that, I just, tried to make myself as appealing as possible to you as a friend and you fell for it and that's the story <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny uh, it's funny because I um after that retreat you know so we did we did three when you were in the program we did three over the course of nine months retreats yeah. Um, and the first one is always kind of awkward because you're meeting these people that you're going to be in a relationship with for a long time um, and I remember, um, I was like, I would, was very anti-social media. 
It's not my jam. <laughs> and that was like you. And I was like, what is this? Why do people do it? And then after that retreat, I also got, so we do evaluations. And one of my evaluation marks was Bree seems like, I can't remember what the, like the nice part was, but the other part was <laughs> that I was really aloof and hard to reach. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting because I think of myself as so warm and cuddly, but I didn't realize how much of a, a, a vibe of distance that I was putting up. And so, and then I actually worked with one of our coaches in that program, uh, Victor, who told me the same thing. Cause I told him, I was like, yeah, people find me really intimidating. I was like, I, find, I think that's so weird. And he was like, mm, that's not weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> like people like like yeah yeah he's like that's how I I was like oh you know Nadia she's so nice and Samaya she's like a warm hug and you hmm. <laughs> so I you know I took the note tried to be less tried to project what I felt like was happening inside which was that I was really excited to be with all of these people and really excited about what the potential held but it wasn't my insides and my outsides weren't matching up and so I mean, I, I take full responsibility for that. Like, I don't think like you were cool. I recognized your innate coolness. It wasn't that it was that I was just intimidated. Like I had a lot of shit to work out at that point and felt like you were too cool for school. I mean, I was less like, I, you know, my, my only goal is to not make this person think that I'm an idiot. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, no. In fact, I, I found what you were doing was sort of like a foreign country to me and one that I resisted entering for a long time for lots of reasons. And so I was really intrigued by it, but also very, I, it just felt very foreign to me. Yeah. Um, the world of the, the social media and engagement. And so, yeah, I was g- really glad that we became friends. And I actually think that's the real joy of the whole program for me is this wonderful circle of people that uh, have enriched my life in, in so many ways, right? It's, yeah. You know, it has been a lot of work and the reaping the benefits of seeing people that you come to love and care about do really wonderful things in the world and for them to be more resourced and more resilient in it, it's quite gratifying. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot of, along the way. So it was- Well, I, th- I feel like we need to clarify- A great adventure. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's what, 10 years now, 10, 12 years? How many years? So our first, well, that I probably met you was probably about 10 years ago. No, but I mean, Um, but our first program. So our first program was August. The first meeting we had where we said we need to do something to help. And it was really me, uh, Nadia Romani and Gina Lekovich, because Nadia and I were not really in this space, but we had been doing some research and Adina was working, you know, night and day in a very tough environment in the end of the second Bush administration or middle of the second Bush administration, really just getting hammered as an American Muslim leader. And we saw the pain and the burnout from her and then from a bunch of people across the country that we had talked to for a research project we were doing on young adults. And we just thought, you know, I mean, it's sort of an audacious thing to say, hey, there's a whole bunch of people in crisis and maybe we can do something about it. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of, hubris that comes with saying you know the world as it is right now is not good enough and we should put our energy into doing something about it but what that something was and how it would take shape really evolved over time but that first meeting happened in august of 
2006. So we're at 15 years well, from then. And you, so, and then to clarify, you are not, you're not Muslim. <laughs> I am not Muslim. You have co-founded and run this program that is specifically for creating Muslim leadership in America and networking those leaders and empowering them to, you know, define what it means to be an American Muslim. And so I think the obvious question is why, why? <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny because we think about these like per, these things as kind of parochial concerns, right? Mm-hmm. They're a concern of my particular group and they're not a concern to anybody else, but my version of America includes American Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so that it just, it like, it's funny to me that it's funny to people because it feels, it, it feels in that sort of way that you know that you're doing the right thing. It just feels internally reconciled with itself. Like it doesn't feel weird to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even feel like it needs justification because it's just an outshoot of what I believe in. Um, and so in that way, it's very aligned. So I'm always kind of struck by how strange it is to folks. I, when I came out of college, so I finished college in 1989, and I was taking a bunch of Jewish studies classes um, to finish my degree. And one of my professors said, hey, have you thought about grad school? And I was like, you know, yeah, I was young. I had kind of gone quickly through school because I was in a hurry to be independent. So I was 19. And one of my professors said, hey, have you thought about grad school? And I said, you know, I'm thinking about it. I don't really know. I, I didn't really know what it was. I was. Like, I hadn't picked up some of these lessons along the way because I was too young. <laughs> and so he said, oh, you should come to Hebrew Union College, which is where he had a joint appointment. And he said, you can come to graduate school there, which is a reformed Jewish seminary. And I said to him, oh, that's so great. Um, I'm, I'm not Jewish. And he goes, no one thinks you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> I just, and I was like, oh, okay. So then I, I, you know, when I graduated, I became the only non-Jew at this Jewish seminary. And I learned very quickly about what it was like to be absorbed in a project, right? This was this institution was building the reform Jewish movement. One, I learned about liberal religion in a way that I hadn't learned before, which was just fantastic. And then I also learned about what it was like to be immersed in a community's institutions that were not really built for you, but that you could learn a lot from. And and the Jewish community has an amazing, you know, it's got more than 120 years of institution building in the U.S., not just like, you know, religious institution building, but building the communal infrastructure that that supports it. And so coming out of that and that the person that I worked for, um, I was I also got a job at HUC. So I worked full time and I went to graduate school. So I was super immersed in this world uh, with a rabbi who had a Ph.D. in Islamic studies. And so it just seemed like a really natural progression. Um, and around the same time that we started Ampli, the center at USC that I was working for also started and I wrote the first grants for a black church leadership program. Um, and so in many ways, they're parallel. And so I felt like I just got this really cool set of both skills and invitations and desire for interacting in places where I was sort of the one of these things is not like the other yeah. and learning how to do that in a way that didn't draw attention to my otherness, right? Like didn't force the thing to accommodate me, but learned how to be part of it. Um, Even though it wasn't built for me and ultimately its goals were more parochial than my own concerns, 
it is part of this larger vision of what it means to live in a pluralistic America that I thought was valuable and worth dedicating my life to. Yeah, that's one thing I really appreciate about you and your work is that if you do have an agenda, the agenda is to make sure that other people get to define their agenda or, or that specific groups get to define their own agenda, right? Which is to say that you don't, you're not trying to build something, you're trying to help people build their own shit. And to me, that I think that's why people maybe feel a little confused because that's a pretty rare thing. Like when, when, you know, especially coming from a smaller uh, religious minority community where resources are so limited. And then to have somebody turn around and be like, oh, I'm going to do all this work um, and I'm going to invest in you and we're going to raise money to do this and blah, blah, blah. And so the first question people have is, okay, so what's the agenda? <laughs> and you were able to like convene all these people together, at least on the Muslim side. I, I know you've done this with the groups, but in my experience, you convened all these people and you were like, no, I'm not trying to, you know, we're not trying to, it's not a political thing. It's not a, we're not trying to, you know, do this or do that. We're really here to help you actually work together so that you can define your own purpose in your own space and what it means to be Muslim. And uh, that, that is not something that you see very often. It's not an opportunity that comes along to, for uh, minority communities very often. And it's also very rare to have leadership like you. And not just because, you know, you're white, but just anybody with a sense of uh, authority come in and be like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. <laughs> and in fact, I'm going to spend my time mostly observing and facilitating. And that's a pretty, I, I mean, I learned, I personally learned a lot by watching how you do your work about what it means to lead from the center or from behind, instead of trying to stand up and tell everyone to follow, follow me. Um, and to me, that's a, that's a much more effective form of leadership because it's, it allows for organic growth. It allows for people to, to have these really unique and interesting aspects to their communities. You know, it's interesting because I, I didn't expect that some of the skepticism would be like, what's your motivation? Mm. Um, but there, there definitely has been some of that. I mean, I think that hopefully it's dispelled now because I I really actually don't I don't have a vision of myself as being the head of anything right I mean I, I am the executive director of a center I I'm very confident in what I have to offer the world and I know what it is I also think that the world's problems and the problems that I'm trying to solve are not problems that are going to be solved by creating dependence right mm -hmm. creating dependence on leadership and I think my training was really as an educator, mm -hmm. right? As somebody who believed in the process of education. And, you know, le leadership in religious contexts can have an educator component to them, but it can also have a guru component to them. Yeah. And I always found that the guru side of things, where the model is sort of distant and kind of out there, were setting themselves up for disappointment, but we're also setting up their, their followers for uh, a kind of dependence that I actually think just fundamentally violates my sense of human dignity. It's not just a dispositional alignment, like it's actually a fundamental value. I don't think that it's okay to create dependence when you can create 
independence or interdependence. I think it's wrong. So if that's wrong, then how you, how you act in the world has to look different. And that means that you, you, you don't shy away from being somebody who does good work and you don't shy away from being an example, but you don't let the example that you lead become something shiny and rarefied, right? Like I want to bring it closer to people rather than further away. I want to make the example of how I live. Like I think I live and present myself in the world in a very kind of aligned and holistic manner. I let people see all the sides of myself. I'm pretty transparent about it. I let people see my good days and my bad days, mostly because I really find everything else is just sort of uh, a performance uh, um, trying to get people to fit into some kind of model that is ultimately a prison for themselves. And so, you know, if I say something and somebody's like, oh, I had no idea you felt this way, or I'm like, yeah, I'm going to show you all, <laughs> show you all of me because I want you to know that I'm, you know, rich and layered and I have a, a broad palette from which to paint. And it's, it's complicated and it's human. And I just don't want, I don't want anybody to think that what they learned from me or what, what their interaction with me was somehow like a performance of brilliance that they got to be, they were excited by it because they were close to it. And I was like, I want people to feel smarter and more able to handle the world and what it throws at them because of their interactions with me. Like, that's what I want in my, in my heart of hearts. What I really want is for people to have learned not answers, but how to, how to solve problems, right? How to, how to do what they want to do in the world, how to think about problems, how to think about answers, how to arrive at solutions. And I want to help with that. Like, that's what I want to help. Mostly because, you know, like, I don't want to be the one in charge. Yeah. I think I have some, I definitely think I have something to offer. And I think I'm smart. If I was aligned differently, I might want to, you know, pursue a life of public worship. Maybe I would be successful at it. I'm not sure. But it's not, it's just not what I want. It's right. not what I want for the world. And it's not what I want for anybody that interacts with me. I want you to, I want you to be better equipped to do what it is that you're called to or drawn to in your life. And maybe if I contribute to that, then I will reap the rewards of more people doing that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. And I just, I want to clarify to you that it wasn't, I wasn't necessarily saying that people think that you have a closeted agenda. It's just that when people invest in communities or invest in individuals, there are expect there's almost always expectations that go with it. Right. And I never felt that with you or in Amicly. I always felt like it was exactly what you said, which is come and get what you need. Our job is to make sure that you are getting what you need to do the work that you really want to do. It was, it was, it was, a, it was almost a sense, it was a sense of trust, right? A lot of times you go to this kind of programming and they're like, we're going to, we're going to fix you up. We're going to help you be better. You were like, no, no, you are exact. And I think it's because, <laughs> I think it was because it was based in this. I mean, the genesis of it was with Adina, right? And because there was this almost, it was very loving, right? You saw people who were good people doing a lot of work and they were trying so hard and they weren't getting the help they needed. And so that's how I always felt when I was in the program. It wasn't like, we're going we're gonna to make you a better leader. It was, you are an amazing leader and you are not being supported and we are going to get you the support that you need. Right. And we're going to help you support mm -hmm. one another. And that's a huge difference, huge difference in just the, the way everything is framed when you're having those kinds of convenings with people. 
And then the other thing that was so powerful for me was just how radically egalitarian the space was that you created, right? Because even within uh, minority communities, there are hierarchies, right? And they're pretty, and sometimes they're incredibly stiff hierarchies. And yours was one of the few spaces I've ever been in where I did not feel like I belonged when I came in the door. And I almost immediately, you know, that was just thrown away. It was it, there, like everything that was done, it was made abundantly clear that every single voice was there for a reason and it belonged there. And mm. that there was no pressure to like be like other people, but also it was very clear that you weren't going to allow through the facilitation process, you weren't gonna allow that hierarchy to set itself up in that space. And that was amazing for me because I was so intimidated by some of those people. <laughs> I do think that we have a an expectation, right? And so I don't, you know, I don't think it's an, it is a, sort of an agenda, but the expectation is actually that you will interact with each other in ways that are healthier, mm. right? That, that, that is actually really what we wanted, right? At the end of the day, the experience that Adina was having in her job, the experience that so many other young Muslims were having was that it was shitty to be in the position that they were in. And it was, it was definitely context, right? The larger culture, um, the larger policy environment, but it was also within, it was also within the community that it was happening and being replicated. And so what we were hoping is that by helping to create a environment of appreciation, right? Of mutual appreciation, that maybe we wouldn't knife each other the same way, right? Um, and I'm not sure that we have been successful. Like we haven't been successful in changing that in larger culture, right? Like that's gotten worse. But I do think that we have an expectation, at least in the within the group itself, that it, hopefully it will be less toxic. Yeah. Right. No, and I, I think that's um, like it's a really hard thing. And, and it's my hope. It, that, is, that is really my agenda. That because there are serious and fundamental disagreements within people within the group. Um, but I think that we have elevated some of those disagreements um, and weaponized them in ways that uh, don't help, right? I mean, they might feel good and they might feel cathartic and they might make you feel powerful, but ultimately, you know, if you're gonna bludgeon people into your side, you're probably losing in some way. Right. It's hard because you, I mean, I have really strong beliefs on many things and I would like people to, believe what I believe um, and it's hard when you get to a point where you're like wow I can't believe this group or this individual thinks this thing that I find it's not just offense like it's fundamentally flawed in a way that is immoral right and they still have you know they yeah. exist and and so, and I'm sure that they feel that same way about me and you know I just did this interview with somebody uh, who's a really well-known peacemaker in uh, the Northern Ireland context. And I was just reminded about like, actually how much I believe in peace building. I mean, I, you know, I can still be a selfie bitch on Twitter like everybody else. And at the end of the day, like, and I will be a strong advocate for the things that I believe in. And in our interpersonal relationships and the way we like wield the power, I think it's really important that we do that in a way that doesn't replicate harm, right? So, and it, we don't have a lot of good examples of that right which is to be powerfully committed to a side and still affirming and dignifying of people who would, would spit in your face or feel comfortable burning your house to the ground 
Um, and I've had some really great teachers in that people who, people like Cecil Murray, who ran the first AME church in LA, who we built our, our black church program for sort of his legacy. And he's somebody who, you know, put his body in between rioters and police in South Central Los Angeles in 1992 to enable the fire department to come and set, to uh, put out the fires that had been set. And he preached a, a theology of, you know, transcendence and liberation. And he worked with in political institutions to move change in ways that were really complicated. And I don't think that we have a lot of models for people who get who get really inside of things and get their hands dirty with them and see them as problematic, but don't throw them away uh, and say that the whole structures are burned down. I remember somebody on the internet said at one point we were in some argument and they said, you know, you're telling me that, you know, the world is okay, but you're in a boat and I'm in the water. And I said, well, I, w- I'm, I think the conversation we're having is not who deserves to be in the boat, but should we burn down the boat factory? Um, and that's what I don't understand. Like, I feel like what we're talking about is about how we create some structures in society that produce these things and they might be flawed. They might not be the boats we want. They might be, but I, I don't, I don't know that I believe, I like, I believe we've gotten to a place in the world right now that is imperfect. And it's also the evolution of things, you know, some of the things that we should get rid of entirely and some things that we have built that are not worth destroying. Right. And just because the things that we have built that aren't worth destroying lived and cohabitated and maybe even mated and spawned with the things we want to get rid of, I'm not willing to burn the whole thing to the ground. Right. Um, well, and so it's a really complicated process, right? And I, I don't think we have a lot of examples of people who wrestle with that in sincere ways we have a lot of just drawing lines and sand and, uh, you know, making things very reductive and simplified. And it's like, what I believe in is making people smarter than being reductive and simplifying things is actually not, it doesn't make people smarter. It makes them hotter. So I had this conversation last week with another friend of mine for the podcast, and we had this, we, we both got to this same point, which is that having to navigate dismantling things that don't work right and while at the same time not destroying it out of your own frustration or other people's frustration right and the idea of dismantling when you dismantle something it is not the same as destroying it right it is not the same as burning it down it's taking it apart and like I mean, you might be destroying it, but you're not like just, you're not just destroying all the materials. You're not taking the whole thing and just like burning it down. So when you're taking something apart, when you're actually dismantling something that actually has sort of a connotation of like, of a lot, there's a logic to it, right? Taking these pieces apart and like putting them, uh, you know, uh, you know, one at a time and like seeing how things were put together. And maybe when you decide to build something better or you decide to fix it and make it, you know, work better, you you understand what what's there in front of you. And instead of just having a pile of ash. And one of the, the problems with this whole burn it down idea is that once you do that, you have you have a vacuum, right? Because there's a lot of scaffolding holding stuff up, (laughs) right? That's really necessary and important. And the people who love the idea of like revolution, like the people who pay the biggest price for revolution are the, 
the most vulnerable people. They're the ones who are dependent on the infrastructure. They're the ones that literally need the things that are kind of holding stuff together. So you burn all that down. Those people who you claim to be trying to you know, fight for are often the ones that are penalized. And then you have a leadership vacuum and into that vacuum steps whoever, the revolutionaries or some other group. And then in order to maintain control, they do the exact same stuff that the old guys are doing, right? They, they, they often revert back to the old way of doing things because that's society runs on patterns. And that's what we know. That was, a, that's what's established. There's a, a, Yates, a, a Yates poem, I think. And it's called the great, the great Day or The Greatest Day. And it says, hurrah for the revolution and cannon shot. The beggar on horseback lashes the beggar on foot. Hurrah for the revolution and cannon come again. The beggars change places, but the lashing goes on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's my point. So, I mean, yeah. but to your point, like that, that to sit in that space of tension where you have to suffer some of the injustice and some of the difficulties while at the same time fully engaging with the systems and dismantling them and being thoughtful about it and being strategic about it, that is an enormous burden, right? That is an enormous amount of work and is incredibly difficult. <laughs> it's not an easy way to live your life. And so um, that's not easy. Like it's, it's much more alluring to tell people, you know, fill people's heads with like dreams of glorious victory and like bonfires and shit. Like the work of democracy, the work of engaging in, uh, in society and the work of social justice, the pursuit of just true justice is, is hard. It's a, it's a hard life. I mean, what other, what other real option is there? What, I mean, no, no, I I, I agree. There is well, an option. I mean, yeah. there is an option, but I don't consider it an option. And the older I get, the more I think that option sucks. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that you have to develop within yourself a, a a better way of knowing and a better way of being, right? So there there is a a context in the culture in which we all operate within that tells you where the goodies are. And right now we live in a very um, kind of perverse culture. And I don't know if it's, you know, different than any other time, but it, it, this is what it feels like now, right? Which is that it's perverse. It, it runs on spectacle. And the way that you win is you amplify a new spectacle. And, and so like, there's a, there is a logic to it. There's a market logic to it. It's, it, you know, if, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Right. And that's always true. And there, there's a leadership style to it, right? Which is loud and vocal and unnuanced and, you, you know, screaming. And it bears fruit. And I, I don't even necessarily resent when that happens because sometimes it does, like it needs to happen. Some, there are things worth yelling about. There are things worth, you know, burning to the ground. There, there are certain, I, you know, I'm not a... I'm not a moderate in terms of process or even, you know, that's not my, that's not my disposition. I, I want the world to be radically different than it is. Mm -hmm. I just also believe that if you have something, you have like, you, you have the component parts of the society that you want as it is now. And some of those things are not going to go away, right? People who are wrong, right. In my view, there's no other place for them to go. Right. <laughs> right. they, they, I mean, there's, there's, there's no planet B for all of the assholes, 
right? right. We get to live on planet awesome. Like that's not how it works. So, <laughs> I mean, it would be nice. Um, I mean, everybody's attempt to do that ends in some sort of, you know, like abusive cult or mass death or, right. you know, war. Like it, that's not a good solution either. And so I think that we have to hold lots of things in tension, right? Like the, the story I love from religion the most is this story from uh, a rabbi, Simcha Bunim, and he you know, was asked, what does the world need? What do people need in order to navigate life? And he said, in one pocket, you have a slip of paper and it says, for you, the world was created. And so you pull that slip of paper out when you feel downtrodden and sad and you're reminded that the whole entire world was created for you, not like humanity, but for you, Amanda, as a person, it was created for you. But that can cause you to get haughty and arrogant and think that you, you know, deserve to be worshipped in another slip of paper. And when you pull it out on that slip of paper, it says you're but dust and ashes. Mm. And it's a reminder that you are literally made of the same atoms as the dirt and the ground, you know, slightly different compositions. And I used to think that the story in that was about the tension, right? Yeah. The tension between these two seemingly in a like opposite things. But now I actually believe that the story isn't about the choice of the paper that you pull out of your pocket. Hmm. So, and I think that that's like, that's actually what I've been thinking about recently is how much discernment goes into pulling out the right piece of paper to give yourself the right medicine. And I, and I love that. I love the idea that all of these things are necessary, right? Like radical revolution is necessary and moderate plotting is necessary and consensus is necessary. And frankly, I think, you know, sometimes violence and war is necessary. Some things are wrong, but some things are even wronger, but it's when is it necessary? Like what we're missing is the discerning lens to understand the application of this whole range of things that we need. And so if only, if what you only ever say is like, we need to be deliberating and collaborative, then I think you'll be wrong a certain a long other time. If you only say what we always need is a radical revolution to upend anything else, you're probably just going to be as wrong. So what you need is a real rich palette of options. And above that, you need a superstructure of ethics and discernment that help you understand when you apply the, the things that you want to apply when in order to get the things that you think you're trying to get. And I think we have a big kind of disconnect. We have one gear, we get into it. That's the one that we pick. We apply it in the wrong situation. And then we get results that are leave us wanting. I think that I have articulated well what the problem is. I don't think I'm a practitioner of it, not an exemplar. Right. So I, I think I, like I, I try to figure that out, but I am, you know, I am not an exemplar of anything. I'm a practitioner. So I work on figuring it out. No, I, I agree with you. I, I actually think I'm a lot more radical than most of my radical friends <laughs> because when I am ready to throw down, it's going to get thrown down. Right. There's like, I'm not like, this is not rhetoric. Like when I'm ready, it's going to go, it's going to be burned down. So for me to get to that point where I'm like ready to burn shit down, it has got to be so bad that I don't see any other options. And right now I don't, I mean, I see so many options that go unexplored. I see so little creative thinking. I see so many people that don't even fucking vote that are ready to have a revolution. Like go, okay, there's a revolution, go vote. Like we have voting so that we don't have to have violent overthrows of government, right? So look, 
I just, I feel like we are, I feel like we are caught up in a lot of emotion. I think that's what's so upsetting to me. It's so frustrating to me. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think there's actually a time and a place for all of these things. And I'm not going to stand by and watch people get hurt without intervening, right? I, I, I get that. But at the same time, why throw away all of the, the methods and tools and things that we have at our disposal, including the law and the political process that very few people even bother to invest themselves in. And I think that's what's so frustrating to me. I feel like democracy is still a hard fucking sell that people just aren't excited about the idea of self-governance. They would much rather get mad at somebody who's in charge and burn down the castle. The, the peril of leadership is that you have to make decisions that people are gonna be angry with. And I don't think democracy, I don't think it guarantees peace, right? I think that that's a different process. And so I still very much believe in the democratic potential. I, and, I, and I think it's worth making the investment in. And I understand why people's frustrations are the way that they are, that, it, that the world is really imperfect and it really is harmful and traumatizing. And the best of our systems, right? You know, they are slow and difficult and interacting with them is awful. And I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. And I don't think it's going to um, be upended or overturned by more people opting out. And I actually think, I, I believe deeply in the honesty of some of those emotions of frustration. Like I think they're very honest and I think they're of an course. honest guide. And so the question is, what is it, what is it that we do with them? And I think in the face of a burn it down catharsis, we have to offer something else, which is to say, and this is what we did with, like with Ankle. our perspective was that we're going to be builders, right? Like what we're going to build is an option for something different. And I, initially I thought we would be more effective at changing the overall culture in which it operates. Yeah. And I think that that culture has its own rewards and systems, but we could make, we can make it feel different to be with us right? And then feel different to be together. And hopefully that feeling would be an attractive pull away from the feeling of kind of cathartic release that right. comes from these other feelings of being powerful, but maybe also being hurtful or harmful. And it, it's, not, it's not easy work. And it's not easy work in the face of a, a culture that, and kind of context that glorifies Practical, but yeah. you know, that's I'm, I. I just I have to feel like that that is that is empty calories, and when people bite into it and it's sand, they'll they'll realize it, and if they don't, then it, maybe the maybe the ones that will are the ones that we need to reach, and maybe there'll be enough of us someday in enough of positions of of power or influence to be able to make it better and offer people like when they bite into what it is that we have to offer, they'll realize it's actually nourishing, nutritious and good. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll keep seeking it. But it, I mean, like, I don't know that these, I just think these are enduring problems and we have these warnings, right? Like ours is not to desist from the task, nor is it to see it finished, right? Which comes from Pirke Avot in the Jewish rabbinic tradition. And I used to think that that was like a, a reminder. 
And now I kind of feel like it's a warning. Mm. Like, remember that these things are going to persist despite your best efforts. And they're going to persist despite all of the work of your life to change them. Right. And it doesn't mean that you get to not do it. Right. <laughs> Which I think is like, you know, it's a, it's a warning. It's a warning of the perils of leadership to me. And I, I think that that's okay. You know, we, we, if that's what you decide to, to do and to live, then you have been warned. So you know what it is. It's true. It's true. And I actually don't think that that actually relieves me. Like that conclusion is actually, um, I I don't feel nihilistic about it at all. I feel like, oh, I get it. I get it. Okay. Right. And then that allows me to just focus on what I can do as opposed to like this idea that we we're going, we must make change. We have to make change. We're going to make change. If we're not making change, there's something wrong with us. Well, there's no, like there's nothing wrong with you. Like we're 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 dealing with the human race. You can do what you can do, but like millions of people are going to do whatever the hell they want to do. <laughs> and so you know, which again is not to say that you are relieved of the burden of having some kind of measurable outcomes for your work, but also understand that like when it comes to other human beings, you don't get to choose their individual or our collective destiny. Like you can just participate yeah. in your own capacity. Yeah, people, people have, I mean, if you believe in the dignity of people then you believe in the dignity of their ability to make their own choices, right? right? right. Um, and you, I think you have to structure a world that insulates people from the harm of their own, the, the, the choices they're enabled to make, right? But you also have to, I mean, I think that one of the things I've learned in the process of doing, you know, peace building work or building institutions or building, building the kind of world that I want to participate in is that we talk a lot about trust, but we don't recognize that underneath trust is actually respect. Like what makes trust happen is respect. And you'll never trust somebody who disrespects you. And so, and I, you know, I teach, I do a a training for public safety officers in USC's uh, Safe Communities Institute. And I talk to them about how you work with different religious populations. They have all sorts of questions that run the range of, you know, they didn't know something, so they have, you know, very problematic views. And I let them ask all of them. But I, I show them this pyramid, right? Because it used to be that people had a perspective of police and let's say that they liked police that they that 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 was enough because of the the position they occupied in the world right mm-hmm. and i said but that's actually not how it like on your best day the people who used to like you might still be skeptical of you and so when you are going into a community that has a bad history with you a history that you know you deserve some of the slack for what you get from them because of the way that you treated them and you tell them i want you to trust me not only do they not trust you, but you haven't done anything that's trustworthy. Right. So what is it? And so if you want to actually back, go back down the ladder a little bit, think about have you demonstrated respect to the people or the leaders that you're asking trust to be given to you? And if you can say, I actually haven't done anything that is respectable or respectful, then you're, you're asking for, like you're, you're working the conclusion of the equation mm. without 
doing the first part of it, right? right? You know, A plus B equals C. And you're saying like, I want C. It's like, but you didn't bring A and B. You didn't bring A and B to the table. Right. So if you treat people with respect uh, and you, and respect comes, and this is what I actually really learned in my uh, being at HUC was that respect lo- comes from understanding the world as someone else sees it, not as how you want them to see it, right? So if you can't fully inhabit someone else's world, the way that they understand themselves, because everyone has a logic, right? And it may not be our logic, it may not be our values, but people make, and it may not be complete, right? They might, if they had different information or different like things that were they cared about, they might make different choices, but people's decisions and the way that they live often make sense to them. So if you want it to change, but you only want it to change because you see it from your perspective, you'll never get them to where they are, like where they could be. You'll never understand. And so I think there's just a, there's a sort of false arrogance that comes from saying like, I'm right. And if you're, if you see it different, then you're wrong. Rather than saying like the world that you inhabit makes your world make sense. And if I can understand and inhabit your world, maybe I can understand why you make the choices. And then I can present my options in a way that are more resonant with who you are or who you want to be or how you see yourself right? Rather than just right. as a, an instrument of my domination. Right, right, right. I feel that recognizing the entropy of humanity is not the same thing as moral relativism. And I completely reject any suggestion that it is. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this idea that, uh, yeah, we, we, do we do construct alternate realities? And if you look at the wide swath of humanity and all of our experiences, we are able to construct infinite variables uh, of what we, you know, what we see and think and believe and engage with. And to simplistically turn and just say, if you believe that you're this, because mm-hmm. on the on the basis that it doesn't agree with my point of view is nuts. Right now, the you know, the first thing people say when I point that out is, so does that mean white supremacists have a valid point or something like that, which is no, it it does not. What it means is that they've constructed a worldview, right, a very specific worldview uh, because of a certain set of experiences and knowledge and environment that they've been in. And if you actually want to fix the problem. I mean, I guess, you know, you could round up anybody with a specific ideology and kill them, but that's even that's not going to get rid of it. So if you actually want to fix that in the world, you have to understand how they got how those people got to that point. And that means understanding who they are, the essence of who they are. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't threaten you as a person, especially if you're doing it as a from a perspective of 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 somebody who's who's there to analyze it and learn, right? I mean, it's not like, I'm not talking about going and hanging out and drinking beers with white supremacists. I'm talking about systematically going through and understanding who those people are. And scholarship is one really good way to do that. You know, I think that we have to make a distinction for people between work that we want done yeah. and work that we're willing to do ourselves. Right. Right? So. Uh, there's, you know, I have been, and I was on a recent conversation 
uh, about allyship and somebody um, said, you know, I don't want to be asked about any of this. Just go Google it. Right. And I said, I, I think that that's an ad- inadequate answer. I think the real answer to what you're saying is, I don't want to be your teacher. Hmm. Yep. But that's different. That's different than saying teaching is not valid. Right. 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 Because yep. actually, I, I think teaching, teaching is sacred. Right. I fully believe that teaching is sacred. I don't think that everybody is called to be a teacher, nor should they. Right. right. So there's a disconnect there. But right. telling somebody to go Google something is it, it leads them to the path of misinformation, right? It's not like the internet is like the, the great place of clarification, right? It's actually the generator of many of these problems, right? So what we're saying and you know, that I don't want to be your teacher, right? I'm not, that's not the role I want to play in the world, which is a completely valid thing. But what it turns into is teaching is not right. Like what it becomes is a sort of, weapon mm. and you know i understand the imposition of asking somebody to teach when they're that's not their role that's also wrong and it's not right to say no one should be teaching you right right that you should be self-taught right being an autodidact has all sorts of problems so the the act of teaching is sacred the act of somebody the person who wants to go drink beers with white supremacists like god bless that they exist not because they're normalizing them but because they're they're going to be more effective at you and I. Now, that doesn't mean that we make room at the table for white supremacy, right? right? Or for neo-Nazis. Like, we don't make room for them at the table. We, we say that that's not okay. We make the, the behaviors consequential. We make the ideology, you know, a, a social poison. Right. But somebody has, somebody has to do something there. Right. And somebody has to do something. Right. And it may not be me, but what I believe is that it's probably going to be somebody Right. And my role is not to undermine and make it harder for them to do their work. My role is also not to make it easier for those guys who are unturned to come sit at the table and act as if their behavior is normal. Right. So it's a more complicated role. But the easy thing is to say they're, we're done with them, right? There's no place for them. Um, and I think if we had an option, <laughs> right, if we had some options for what to do with them, then we would yeah. have like we believe in rehabilitation, right? Like a, as a, we believe that people can change. Yeah. Um, I, like that's a, it's a religious belief that I have. Like right. fundamentally, I do actually think that people are capable of transformation and we should enable that, but we should also set some boundaries at the same time about what is acceptable and not acceptable. Right. So it doesn't, it's not a boundaryless and open field. And, but it's not, if, if it's work that you're not called to do, it doesn't mean that someone else isn't. And it doesn't mean that it's invalid. And maybe your role is to quietly let them do it. Yeah. I, and I completely understand that part of the pushback about this is that it is often, it has almost always been the responsibility of the people who are being hurt, marginalized, oppressed, whatever, up to this point to do the educate, the quote unquote educating as if, as if they were, as if the world is owed an explanation from them about why they're in the situation that they're in. And I think a lot of the work that needs to happen. So for example, in the case of white supremacy is that white people need to go and do some work, right? With their own people, right? They, they need to go fix some shit and stop expecting people of color to be the ones to answer, which is, you know, like, yes, 
they, these, you know, there are, there's great, uh, you know, black and, you know, BIPOC uh, scholarship that we can rely on, but individually people don't exist in the world just to be our, our references for the issues that we're grappling with as a society. So I think all of this has been muddied because of the nature of social media and the big public, sp the spaces in which we're doing all of this kind of public dialogue. And there are people out there, both, you know, people of color and white people who are happy to have those kinds of conversations. There's also an enormous number of people who are not, and there's no way of categorizing that, right? There's no way of knowing that if you approach somebody who you don't really know on social media and ask them a question, if they're gonna, if, if, that's appropriate or not, right? We don't have those kinds of social cues and signals in these environments. So it's so important. I mean, I'm a huge believer that we need to be doing exactly what you said, building out spaces and building out the, the uh, resources and the frameworks for addressing these issues and helping people who truly need, who, who need to change, right? And by that, I mean, just, I'm not talking about brainwashing people, I mean helping people who are stuck in ways of behavior that violates our agreed upon social contract of looking at one another and saying, we're all American or we're all human. And if you, you know, if there are people that are not able to do that, those people need help because that's got to be the bare minimum. That's got to be the thing that we all agree on. And so, um, I, yeah, I, I'm not about like just throwing those people in the trash. I don't think that that's the right choice. And it's definitely not ever going to help us get rid of ugly ideologies. These ugly things, when they get going, they're cancerous and they don't go away, right? It's 2022 and there are still fucking Nazis in the world. That shit does not go away. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. The question is, are we gonna play whack-a-mole with these things? To the end of time and if so okay but is there a more effective way for us to um to try to work those nasty things out of our societies or at least set up alternative ways for those people who are drawn to those ideas to um to explore them safely and and get help yeah um i on one hand, I so I think that the idea that we're going to dismantle um, white supremacy is a is a really good goal. I don't know that it's ever going to happen. I, I have no problem with it. I think the problem that I have is that I think the more likely outcome is that it's going to be consequential to be a white supremacist mm -hmm. or a neo-Nazi or an anti-Semite or to be, you know, uh, an anti-gay bigot or somebody who hates trans people and attacks them and wants their exclusion. Like, I don't know that we're gonna ever rid ourselves of ideology that's really cancerous and poisonous and toxic for our humanity. I think that we can make it consequential to believe those things. Um, and so, and maybe that's a, a cop-out because it's not a revolutionary enough goal but I think it's like I think it's actually a pretty I think it's achievable I think it's achievable to say that we can make it consequential for those to, for you to behave in ways that foster and advance them rather than like fighting the specter of the ideology itself I mean I 
I, I you know, I, they call anti-Semitism the oldest hatred. I mean, I think, you know, that may be true if you don't count misogyny. And I, I, so I don't know that it's, it's evolved. It's evolved over uh, two millennia. It, it's, you know, take on a, a, it took on a racialized uh, form in the last couple of centuries, but it didn't go away, but it became more consequential. Right? It became more consequential to be anti-Semitic. It became more consequential to exclude Jews from spaces and positions of power and to, you know, to not enable them to fully participate in uh, at least you know, Western culture and civilization. Um, and so from you know, the emancipation of the Jews forward, it became consequential. Now, then, of course, there were you know, uh, uh, opportunities where that, like, you know, actors where that wasn't the case, right? The Nazi rise to power rose on the back of anti-Semitism exploited for political purposes. And so, you know, like, it it wasn't always successful. But I think more and more, somebody saying anti-Semitic things have consequences. And I'm not sure that it makes people say fewer anti-Semitic things, but it, it's, a, it's a signal to society that that's not acceptable. I guess what, the thing I struggle with is playing in the, the realm of a kind of imagined future versus right. dealing with what I can see in front of me has actually been an effective tool. Right. And there's still lots of anti-Semitic hate crimes, right? But many of those hate crimes tend to be property crimes. That they're, they're, not, they're not you know less violent in terms of what they say. Putting a, a swastika on a synagogue is a disgusting act that's vile that you know forecasts the kind of violence. But it's a different act than burning the synagogue down, and it's a different act than storming the synagogue and murdering people inside. And I would like none of them to exist. But if you know, if largely what anti-Semitism uh, the acts of anti-Semitism look like are graffiti rather than murder. I would prefer none, but I, I would take, I like from a pragmatic perspective, I would take the consequence of, you know, of uh, anti-Semitism that looks like the violence of words rather than the violence of guns. Um, and I don't know, you know, like that's not my, it's not my choice. I, I feel like that's the choice the Jewish community has made, right? Like that they, they have made an infrastructure to fight anti-Semitism um, in such a way and take care of themselves and their institutions and communities in order to, to do that, to make themselves safer, to make their, the targets harder to get into. I mean, the threats are always there, uh, but the manifestations a lot of times are property crimes. And I, I just think that it's better. It's not good, but it's better. Right. And I think like, like that's, that's important, right? It got rooted out of many institutions. The anti-Semitism that existed got rooted out of many institutions. Right. And that's an improvement. Yeah. It's not it's not the promised land, but it's an improvement. Right. Yeah. It's entirely possible that we will never get rid of those things that plague us. But I think the goal then has to be maintaining this sort of status as a society where we don't backslide where we make whatever progress we make in what you're talking about we're able to hold that line I think that's why we're in the place that we're in right now I do think a lot of people felt like we had made all that progress and and by progress I don't mean getting rid of racism and anti-semitism and all of that I mean it felt like those people who were racist anti-semitic understood 
that there were consequences for for a while, right? That that these things were not as um, they were more low key, I guess. They never went away, but they were more low key, and we felt like, you know, there wasn't a immediate existential threat at all times <laughs> to uh, to the people we care about, and then what we saw recently in the last, you know, five, six years is that it's just there. It's all there. It's all just like bubbling under the surface. And so my concern is like how quickly we go backwards or how quickly that takes over or bubbles over um, that kind of undercurrent that's just always there. Um, it, it, I guess what I'm saying is for a lot of people like me, we've realized how precarious our progress is, what little that we feel like we've made, it's not mm -hmm. ever gonna be a sure thing. And that is a, an incredibly sobering place to be. And in some ways disheartening place to be. Yeah, I, I think that the, so there's a quote from um, uh, The Crucible, which I quote often, cause I think it's really smart and so it's, Proctor speaking and you know talking about what's unfolding and he says we are what we always were but naked now mm. um, and that's what I think right. the in many ways the Trump administration forced a lot of people including myself to confront um, about you know the very present and persistent existential threats that um, black people especially right. continue to feel uh, in this country and uh, and that it's real. It's not. It, it, it's not imagined, and it's not. It's not erased by certain types of progress. And that there, we can have a lot of technological progress. There's a great, oh, who is it? Gil, Scott, Heron, Whitey on the Moon. There's a great uh, song, uh, like a sort of spoken word piece. And he's like, you know, it. I. We don't have these basic things, but Whitey's on the moon. Oh, um, and so, yeah. and, and it's, and it's, and I was, you know, thinking about that the other day because of the, the Mars landing, which, you know, it's basically was engineered in my backyard at, at the Jet Propulsion Lab. And so we have this amazing technological progress and yet we, we lack some basic fundamentals, including, you know, human rights for a large portion of our population. Yeah. And so like, I want to live in the world that sends things to Mars and also guarantees people basic fundamental human rights and dignity and I don't want to lose the ability to have robotic surgery <laughs> like I don't like I don't want to burn down the boat factory and I don't want to have that at the cost of the a form of radical inequality that is not worthy of us like I, I don't think so you know I, I think it's complicated the thing I, I think I, I resist is when people assert that the incremental progresses that we make in pursuit of these bigger goals actually work against our revolutionary potential. Because mm. I actually think that that's wrong. And that's, to me, that's the underlying logic that uh, some of all of this is operating on, which is that if you have a relief valve that gives people a decent wage, but not a living wage, or if you have a relief valve that gets a lot of people on healthcare, but not everyone on healthcare, or if you have these things that move us towards our ultimate goals, that they're actually worse than the conditions that we're in currently. 
Mm-hmm. Because then if they were, if things got so bad, we would get our revolutionary goals. And I just, I actually think that that's uh, the, uh, it's a flaw. It's, it's not right. Right. Like, I don't think that we should, I don't think it's ethical. I don't think it's moral and I don't think it's politically true. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's actually the thing. If you get down to like my base political philosophy, that is the logic of the more radical left that I reject because I don't think that people should have to live in inhumane prison conditions as a precondition, like to get us radicalized enough that we do something about prisons in a way that affirms human dignity. Right. I actually, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's moral. I don't think it produces the political consequences. That is what I dislike and distrust, which is the idea that if it just gets bad enough, we will get it to get good enough. Yeah, and yeah, the Trump a- administration to me is a really interesting example of that, right? Like what we what we had in 2016, we could have been building on for four years right. under Hillary Clinton. Right. But instead, we said let's throw, let's give Trump a world, and what he was able to erode was so unbelievable. He you can destroy faster than you can build. So what he destroyed took us back so far. Then in order to get back to just where we were in 2016, it could take our lifetimes. I think that there are a, a lot of really smart, radical leaders who are, I mean, I think that, the, that there's a lot of people who are doing that work. I think a lot of it gets drowned out by right. a, a chorus on Twitter that says that's not enough. And I think if you take it off of how it's mediated online, and frankly, I think a lot of what happens online is, is just, it's dishonest and disingenuous right. communication. But I think that the people who are leading, uh, you know, like the prison abolition movement, which is, you know, something that I have a lot of complicated feelings about as somebody who m- needs an individual to be locked up for the harm that they've done to me personally, right? Like I'm, I need them to be away, but I also don't want them to be put out of society in a way that makes them worse, right? right. Um, not because I care that much about them, but because I actually don't think it's good for society. Like, so I, you know, have this long history of being stalked, which is what I'm referring to now. And the person who does it needs to not be uh, in the general population of the world. Like he's uh, incapable of it. But what he's facing is not a system that would make him any better. It's not, I mean, it just really makes it worse. And I don't, particularly care given the violations that I've had in my life as a result of him what happened to him because I like I'm not in the I'm not in the moral space for that kind of extension of grace but I do I'm just not like I I care about my safety right like we're in the hierarchy of needs and my safety comes first and at the same time I don't actually want a world in which the people like him right if I can abstract away from him get worse or, and are, and then ultimately do worse things as a result of what's supposed to be, you know, something that is about their punishment and maybe hopefully their rehabilitation. So like I, accompl- I like I, I want to be in a place that is more understanding about it, but I think that there's a lot of really good strategy that's happening. Um, it's for people to like imagine things differently and uh, propose things that are different and reallocate budgets in ways that are more humane. And, and I think that, like, I think it would be a mistake to say that it doesn't happen. I think what happens is even those folks are frustrated because the ones who are doing the work 
right? That are not keyboard warriors that are really doing the work. And this, you know, Heather Farag in my office reminded me of this one time because I was talking about my frustration with um, prison reform and abolition. And she said, you know, the people who I know who do this are advocating for abolition, but they're also advocating for better visiting hours mm-hmm. and more humane treatment and, and phone calls that are not exploitative in terms of their calling, like the cost to make the correct right. calls right. and commissary. And, and so she, she, she really, you know, offered me a good corrective for my over generalization of what I see, which is like, you know, no matter what you do, since it doesn't undo the hetero patriarchal capitalist industrial complex and it's crap, which right. is like what you feel like is happening in the discourse on Twitter. What she was saying was, no, the people who really care about the long-term also care about the short-term conditions of the people. Yeah. And that's who you have to focus on. Focus yeah. on the people who are doing the work to make humanity exist in a better now and building a better tomorrow. And I think if you can find those people, and the problem, the problem with things like Twitter is that they focus and sort of narrow our aperture in that culture of spectacle. Yeah. And so what you have to do is find the real people doing the real work because that the chorus of noise and spectacle will always say it's not enough, right? right? It's, not, it's not good enough, it's not revolutionary enough, it's not badass enough, it's not you know, undermining enough, it's not burning it down enough, whatever. And you can, you can listen to them, but you'll never get anything done. Because yeah. that, that's a world that's actually never satisfied. Yeah. I remember when I... <laughs> that in a very strange thing way asked to do this event with Hillary Clinton on her campaign. And <laughs> I was wearing a tank top in my office and I was like, yeah, I'm happy to come to your event. This like national thing, but like someone's got to get me a blazer because I'm not <laughs> dressed appropriately. And that was my only concern. And then when I sat down and I realized like, Oh, they wanted to talk about national security and community engagement and all. And I was like, all right, which, you know, I had something to say about. But in that moment, I thought there's a whole bunch of people who would be really happy if what I did was create a spectacle. Mm-hmm. Right? I spoke truth to power and I did all these things. And I was like, but you know what? Next week, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm, uh, and the goodies I'm going to get from this spectacle are going to be fleeting. They're not, it's not loyalty. I'm not, I won't produce any change. It's just a flash in the spectacle pan. I was like, that's not what I want to use this opportunity to do. Right. So I spoke very candidly but, and very honestly, but I didn't create spectacle for its sake. I didn't create an opportunity for somebody else to, you know, give me a quick high five when the next week they're going to knife me in the back anyway. Right. And I did what I thought was honest and good in that moment. And that was a real, it was, you know, five years ago now. It was a real good leadership lesson for me because I thought I... I have to be okay with what I say. Mm-hmm. I have to be okay with, and I, and I want to be in this for the long run, right? If she's going to be our president, which, you know, I was very hopeful that she would be, then I want to be in it for the long run, not the short term, one time speaking truth to power and feeling, and I, I felt like I spoke truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was honest and, and decent in what I said, and it was in a way that it could be heard. And I think it was more powerful than any spectacle I've ever created. Um, But I made a choice in that moment. And that was a good, that that was the, that was a choice that I think was also a rejection of the culture of spectacle. But there is still a great, I have a picture, um, someone, one of my friends took in the audience and it's me talking and Hillary Clinton's mouth is like, (laughs) and I love it because I'm, I'm saying what I thought I needed to say. I don't even remember what it was at the time, but I was, I was saying what I thought needed to be said. And she looked a little shocked. 
Um, and it was good, but it, it was good in a way I'm proud of, Excellent. right? And not in a way that just like advances the culture of spectacle that I think is really eroding and corroding our ability to make the deals we need to make now better for people. Right. And I think I actually believe that if we make now better, that people will want an even better future. Agreed. And if we make now worse, they will, they will take whatever scraps that they can get because it's going to be so desperate. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of like fundamentally disbelieve the logic that undergirds all of this, which says that if we keep it terrible, then people will realize what we need. Like if we keep it terrible, they will they will take anything, and that's undignified. Or just become so apathetic because there's no end to it. It just never seems you never if you never get any wins. How long can you go? Like, how long can you go just under the premise that everything is awful all the time? Like mentally and emotionally and spiritually, you cannot. It's just exhausting. And I think the last- Yeah, well, four who wants to join your joyless movement? <laughs> like, oh, you have no joy? You, you shit on everything? You're awful and all you do is like, you know, hate on people? Sign me to fuck up. I can't wait to join that train. Like, that yeah. sounds- terrible it's yeah. so terrible like why why would anybody want to like it, it, you can only live in that for so long before you reject it it, mm-hmm. it just sounds awful yeah all right well we have had a very long but very fruitful conversation and it's of course it's never long enough <laughs> we could talk more but i think uh i have a meeting so anything you would like any brilliant pearls of brie wisdom you would like to close on um gosh no that's a high bar um no i i mean i i'm i you know there's a a great quote i think it was dorothy day that said if it's it's not my revolution if i can't dance Mm. and i want i want people to live in and experience all of the richness of what life has to offer now just not in the distant future and i think the world can be good and joyful and nurturing and fun and silly and you know serious all at the same time and all in our lifetimes and that we have a lot of power and agency to make that happen um if we don't hold out for some promise that doesn't ever get delivered on so i'd say make make it happen now in whatever ways you can yeah well i know all about your impromptu dance parties and i hope everyone will follow suit all right, Brie, thank you so much for, for showing up. Um, my pleasure. You have to come back again at some point. My fantasy is that someday uh, soon I will be able to come and see you in person and we can record live. That'd be awesome. It would be awesome. That would be fantastic. I know. Maybe we'll get yeah. Emma in on it too. Yeah. Like, ooh, if we could get Robbie to come too, that oh would be God. a spicy day. Yes, it would. All right. You have a fabulous rest of your day, and uh, I look forward to sharing your breeness with the world. <laughs> Goodbye. I love you. Okay. Well, I love you too. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.